All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And if you are visiting us here, uh, I would love to get a chance to meet you. And so at the conclusion of the service, I will be over by Next Steps. And uh, just go ahead and head over there, and we'd love to shake your hand and meet you and, uh, and your family. So uh, that's that. But with all that said, I want to jump into our series, and we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't even remember what week we're in anymore, but we're, we're continue to work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, Solomon is going to be addressing and exposing uh, the next idol that he decides to pursue. And uh, here's the reality. This idol that he's about to talk to us about is a very significant and considerable and prominent idol in our day. And that is the idol of work, the idol of work. So in light of all that, in light of that idol that he's going to be addressing, we're actually gonna be looking at two passages today. We're going to look at the end of chapter two and then we're going to look at the middle of chapter four because in both passages, he talks to us about the idol and the pursuit of work. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 2. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 2, starting at verse 18. And if you're with me, say amen. amen. Solomon writes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Everyone say despair. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which, with which he toils on beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. Everyone say sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Everyone say vexation. Even in the night, his, rest, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have or who can have enjoyment? Everyone say enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And then in the middle of chapter four, verses four through seven, he says this about the idol of work. He says, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness, everyone say quietness, than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, 
so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come before you this morning, I thank you for the fact that as we as a church preach exegetically, exegetically, expositionally, verse by verse, through the whole counsel of God, we get to address subjects like this. And as we today address the subject and the topic of work, I know, Lord, that you are fully sovereign over the fact that this was the Sunday that this needed to be addressed. I'm not sure what everyone else is going through, but I know, Lord, that you know. You know each one of us. You are a good shepherd that knows his sheep. And so in light of that, God, I ask and I beg that because you are sovereign over the process, I pray that you would be sovereign over the preaching. And I ask and I beg in Jesus' name that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I pray that what I say here from this stage would be for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, like I already mentioned, we are unpacking the, the subject and the topic of work. That is the next idol that Solomon decides to pursue. And I believe that in this passage, Solomon teaches us three lessons, uh, three principles about work. And the first lesson, the first principle that I believe we learn from this passage is we learn about the futility of work. Everyone say futility. The futility of work. For those of you who have been following along in this series, you know that Solomon has pursued several things already. He pursued human uh, advancement and human progress in chapter one. Then at the end of chapter one, he pursued human wisdom and knowledge. Then at the beginning of chapter two, he pursued human pleasure and satisfaction. And now he comes across another idol, another counterfeit God that is very prominent in our day. And that is the idol of work, the idol of work. So he essentially jumps right in. I love how Solomon writes. He doesn't, he doesn't waste his words. He, he jumps right in. He says, the next thing I pursued was work. And as he jumps in, essentially what he discovers is that there are two things that are true about work on earth, under the sun, apart from God. The first thing that is true is that it won't leave a legacy, future tense, but it also won't meet your longings present tense. That's what he discovers. So in verses 18 through 21, he talks about how regardless of how hard you work under the sun, apart from God, you won't leave a legacy, future tense. And regardless of how hard you work in verses 22 through 23, he says that your longings won't be satisfied, present tense. So let's look at each one. The first thing he says is that what we do on earth under the sun, apart from God, will not last and won't leave a legacy. Now, the reason why we know that is because he talks about generations here. And he literally says, one of the things that most frustrates him, one of the things that makes him hate work under the sun is that someone will give their life over to to toiling and working and striving and gathering and collecting and storing and hoarding. And then after all that work, they will have to give it to someone else. 
when they die, when they retire, they got to give it to someone else and they can't control what the next generation will do with what they produced, with their labors, with the fruits of their labor. So that's why Solomon argues that there is nothing that lasts. There is no legacy. When we try to do work under the sun, apart from God, nothing lasts. There is no legacy. And what I love about this whole principle of nothing lasting and there being no legacy is that as Solomon writes it, he's experiencing it in real time for two reasons. One, because he is squandering what his dad gave him. See, King Saul was the first king, and then after Saul came David, and under David, things got significantly better as he honored God. And then Solomon shows up on the scene, and right now he is actively squandering everything that his dad worked for. He is giving himself over to all these women, and all these women come from different religious backgrounds. And so he's giving himself over to idolatry and to syncretism. And the, the longer he lives, the less he worships God. And instead of there being one altar in Jerusalem at the temple, there are numerous altars and high places in Jerusalem. And so he is literally in the moment reflecting back on his life and thinking, I am a living embodiment of this principle. And then to make matters worse, his son shows up, Rehoboam, and then what, what Solomon had already ruined, he goes then and ruins it completely. So, so when he talks about this concept of, of work under the sun, not lasting and not leaving a legacy, he is talking from personal experience. I, one of my friends here on, in our congregation, he works in wealth management, and him and I had lunch a few months ago, and I wrote this, actually I had him quote, uh, text me this quote because it jumped out at me. He said this, he said, 70% of wealth is lost by the second generation. 90% is lost by the third generation. And, and here's a side note here, but it makes me think of 2 Timothy 2, that we are to guard the deposit. I feel like that's true, not just of finances. I feel like that's true of the gospel. That when we don't guard the deposit, when we don't guard the inheritance, I feel like these percentages can be true in the church as well. Because what is assumed by one generation ends up being ignored by the following one. But Solomon, essentially, he doesn't need these statistics. He can tell you from personal experience that there is no lasting legacy for the person who works and strives and toils under the sun and apart from God. But not only is there no lasting legacy, the other thing he says is that there's no, in the present, that's future tense, the legacy, but in the present, there is no longings satisfied. And we know that because what he says in verses 22 and 23 is he talks about a striving of heart. And which is so interesting to me because he can easily talk about the striving of our hands. Right? When we think of, the, of workaholism, we think of someone striving with their hands. Solomon says the reason why they are struggling and striving and toiling at the hand level is because they are actually striving at the heart level. And he says that those same people who, apart from God, are toiling and striving and working... Not only do they have a striving of heart during the day, but their heart does not rest at night. Solomon says that apart from God, under the sun, work leads to stressful days and sleepless nights. Not only do you lack true work, but you also lack true rest. 
You see, when you are living this type of life, and this, is, this can be something that a, a Christian is doing, by the way. Even if you are a follower of Jesus, you can be living like this, right? But, but when you lack this rest that Solomon is talking about at the heart level, at the soul level, it doesn't matter how many retreats you take. It doesn't matter how many sabbaticals you get. It doesn't matter if you can sleep 20 hours straight and still be exhausted. Because the rest that he's referring to is at the heart level, is at the soul level. The reason why, if, if, if anyone can relate to this, I know I can, the reason why is because when you look at work under the sun, apart from God, there's always another email to answer. There's always another deal to close. There's always another client to call. Always. It never stops. And the reason why it never stops is because God actually was the one who gave us the business to do it. For the, for the sinner, it says he has given them over, says at the end of the text, in verse 26, that God has given the sinner, specifically, he has given the sinner over, get this, to gathering and collecting. And what's crazy to me is that if you look at it in the original language, there is no definite article there. So literally, he has given the sinner over to gather and collect nothing in particular. It quite literally is the, the chasing the wind. There's nothing. That, that, that he's given the sinner to the person who has uh, denied him, the person who wants nothing to do with him. He has given them the business of gathering and collecting nothing. No definite article. So as a result, we, we live in a culture that because there is no definite article and people are gathering and collecting and striving and working and storing and hoarding, in, in our culture, we confuse movement with meaning. In our culture, we confuse incessant activity with eternal validity. That, that busyness in our culture equates to purposefulness. Solomon says, no. And in a culture where words like busy and tired and booked and exhausted, in a culture where words like that are signs of righteousness, Solomon says they are actually symptoms of your brokenness. He argues that working and toiling under the sun apart from God results in stressful days and sleepless nights. So upon reflection, he's reflecting on this reality. He's reflecting on work under the sun. And after reflecting on it, there are four emotional responses that Solomon has to what he has seen. And each word is so strong in and of itself, but he uses all four to describe his reaction, his response to the investigation that he's been on. The first thing he says about this reality, work apart from God, he says that he hated it. And the word there in Hebrew means to loathe something, to detest, to abhor, to have enmity with something. Maybe you have felt that towards work. I know I have. I've had this feeling. But then he says, under the sun, apart from God, not only is it hate, he also feels despair. There is, the word there means hopeless has to do with being desperate, being despondent. Then he says, in addition to all of that, he finishes by saying, I also felt sorrow. The word sorrow there means mental and emotional pain 
grief, and anguish. And then this one's the one that I find most interesting, vexation. Because the word there, vexation, it means to be provoked by somebody, to be taunted by somebody. And when you feel provoked, you respond with anger and frustration. So, so he sees that God is the one who has given humanity over to this as a result of our sin. And it gets him angry and frustrated. So after getting a lay of the land, after pursuing this idol, he gets to the dead end like he does every week. And these are the emotions that he feels. So according to Solomon, work under the sun, work apart from God, is striving and toiling. That is vain, vapor, and meaningless. So that is the futility of work. Now that we've looked at the futility, the next lesson I believe we learned from this passage is we learn about the theology of work. The theology of work. I want everybody to say theology. Here's the thing about a theology of work. Even though the majority of us spend most of our waking hours working, like when you think about your life, many of us spend the majority of our lives working. And even though we spend the majority of our lives, our days, our years, our decades working, many of us do not have a biblical theology for it. And I don't want you to miss that I specifically use the word biblical. Every person has a theology for work. The question is, is your theology biblical or not? Is it worldly or is it godly? Is it heavenly or is it earthly? We all have a theology, but how biblical is that theology? See, I think in order for us to understand and appreciate what Solomon is trying to teach us here, we have to uh, lay a foundation. We have to establish a theology for work. Here's what we need to know if we are going to have a theology for work. First thing, work was God's idea and not ours. Work was given to us by God before the fall happened. Pre-fall, God gave us work. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look what it says in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. It says, and God blessed them. Now, before we read, I, I love this. I think so often we think that uh, uh, the indicatives and the imperatives, the, 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 the grace of God, well, you know, God gives us the done before he gives us the do. We think that's only a New Testament thing. But what I love about this is that in the first chapter of the first book, it says God blessed them first and then gave them the burden of work. It doesn't say that he, he didn't say, hey, go be fruitful and multiply. Go subdue the earth. Go have dominion and then I'll bless you. No, no, no. He says, I've blessed you. In light of the blessing, here is your burden. In light of our relationship, here is your responsibility. In light of our intimacy, here is your activity. So, so God gives them work. He says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he adds to it. It says, the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So, so what we see here is that God is the one who came up with the concept of work. 
It was something that was given by God before the fall ever happened. It was given by God before sin ever entered the world. But when sin entered the world, the Bible teaches that sin impacted everything. See, sin didn't just impact us relationally. It didn't just impact us uh, uh, spiritually. It didn't just impact us emotionally, uh, I mean mentally or emotionally. But according to the Bible, it also affected us and impacted us vocationally. Our vocation was impacted by sin. Our work was impacted by sin. And we know that because look what it says in Genesis chapter 3. In, in Genesis 3, God is talking to Adam and he says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. So the actual ground, we, we talked about this a few, uh, a few weeks ago. We're going to talk about it again next week, that creation itself was impacted by our sin. Cursed is the ground, not because of God, but because of you, Adam. In pain, he says, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And because the ground is cursed, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Which, in light of what we talked about last week, we were never supposed to die. So the only reason why we go back to the dust is because of our sin as well. But I want you to see that one of the things that was directly affected and impacted by our sin was our vocation. Was our view of work, our relationship with work. Ever since Genesis chapter 3. Well, let me put it this. In Genesis 1 and 2, work was a means by which we worship God. It was a means of worship. From Genesis 3 onward, work was no longer a means of worship. It became an object of worship. It is one of the ways that humanity tries to cover its nakedness. One of the ways that we try to deal with our shame and our nakedness is through work. So instead of work being a means of worship, it has now become an object of worship. And one of the things that we talk about here as often as we can is we talk about the three root idols, significance, security, satisfaction. And I don't have a ton of time to unpack it, but let me give you this quick synopsis. Every person in here is an idolater. I don't know if you knew that, but that's free of charge, okay? Every single person in here is an idolater. We are worshipers by nature. But if we don't worship God, the creator, vertically, we will worship the creation horizontally. Whenever we go out into creation to worship the creation instead of the creator, the reason why we are drawn to those things is for one of three reasons. We are either worshiping that thing because of significance, because of security, or because of satisfaction. The significance person is the individual who struggles with insignificance. And so as a result, they go to creation in order to find uh, acceptance and approval. They, they, they like to be liked. They love to be loved. They need to be needed. That is the significance person. They go out to creation to find significance. The security person is the individual who struggles with insecurity. And so they go into the world looking for power, control, purpose, stability, a plan, safety, and then the 
satisfaction person is the individual who struggles with dissatisfaction. And so they go out into the world, they go to creation instead of the creator, looking for peace and comfort, rest, pleasure, the abundant life apart from God. Those three root idols are the three things that move us towards finding, uh, making work an idol. So, so each person goes to work, but they go to work for completely different reasons at the heart level. You have two people who are doing the same work at the hand level, but they are there for completely different reasons at the heart level. So, so the significance person, the individual who struggles with insignificance, they go to work for the purpose of performing and producing. And if I can go to work and I can perform enough and I can produce enough, I will be found more acceptable by my boss, by my coworkers, by my employees, by my spouse. Everyone will know that I am significant because of the work I do in this place. That's the significance person. The security person, he, they, go to, uh, they go to work, but they go there for purpose. They go there for protection. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but they go there for provision. The security person is worried about security, right? They struggle with insecurity. So work is, is a way they provide, and that work is their provision. And so if I work, I will make money, and that will protect me. That will provide for me. It's where I find my purpose. It's where I find my plan. It's where I find stability. And then the satisfaction person goes to work for pleasure and play and to meet their other idols. Here's, here's, here's this. This one's a little more complicated. If you're a satisfaction person, you will either pick a job that's super easy, that doesn't require anything of you, because you don't want to get pushed out of your comfort zone. I don't want to be, you know, stretched here, so I'm going to do the easiest thing possible. I could do more, but I'm going to do less, because I don't want to get myself stressed out, right? Or they have a job that maybe is more outside their comfort zone, but they're only doing the job because work allows them to rest. The week, the week prepares them for the weekend. Work hard so they can play hard. Their real idol is the result of work. But the reality is, is with each one of these things, and that doesn't even, side note, that doesn't even include the fact that Solomon says that part of the motivation, he says in chapter four, is that we envy one another. We envy other people's stuff. We envy other people's lives. We envy other people's uh, work ethics. And so we give ourselves over out of envy. He says a lot of our striving comes from envy. He also says though, and this is devastating, but it's crazy how modern this book is. He says that the individual who idolizes work it says they isolate themselves. It says in the text that they have no son or brother. In other words, that there are direct implications for when we, when we idolize work, we end up isolating ourselves from others. And the reality is, is that we look back at the Old Testament and we look at things like child sacrifice and we think, well, that's not a thing today. Well, it is on two levels. One, because of abortion, it is still around. But also there are individuals who will say, who will vote against abortion but they're sacrificing their kids on the altar of work. Child sacrifice is alive and well in the Christian church. I will sacrifice my family on the altar of my job. Just a few more hours, just for another raise to move further up that ladder. So here's what this means, church. What this means is that work 
and our relationship to it, our work might change us, but it always reveals us. Okay, your, your work might change you, but it always reveals you. But here's what happens. When work reveals our idols, instead of doing the work of dealing with our idols, we blame someone else. It's not, it's not me, it's the job. It's not me, it's my boss. It's not me, it's my coworkers. It's not me, it's always someone else's fault. But what work does, it doesn't change you. It could change you if you allow it to, but it will always reveal you, always. It will reveal your idol structure. It will reveal what actually motivates you. And that's why I really struggle when you have a Christian who on Sunday morning is a gospel-centered disciple. And then Monday through Friday uh, is a, you know, money-centered pagan. Because work is, 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 you know, church is sacred, but it doesn't matter how I act at work. See, when we lack a biblical theology... And when we lack a gospel identity, we end up with vocational idolatry. And because of this vocational idolatry, here's what we do. There are two responses. There are the people who overvalue work, and then there are the people who undervalue work. Here's why both of those are realities. On the one hand, work, like I said earlier, is God's idea, Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. And yet, at the other, on the other hand, Genesis 3, it has been marred by our sin. It has been marred by our transgression. So, so because of that reality, because it's from God, work is fulfilling. But because it's been marred by us, it is frustrating. So it's fulfilling and frustrating at the same time. So we go, like, we're on, like, this seesaw. Like, when it, there's times where it's fulfilling, and our temptation is to uh, have this uh, idealism, and then there's times where it's frustrating and our temptation is to have cynicism. I mean, we go from idealism to cynicism, sometimes all within the same day. We'll be on our way to work and be like, it's a good day. Can't wait to get to work. A few hours go by, be like, this is the worst day. <laughs> and I hate my job. That's the, that, that balance, right? The fulfilling and the frustrating. It is created by God, but it's been marred by us. And so that's the, and when we only focus on the fulfilling part, we tend to, overvalue it. And when we only focus on the frustrating part, we end up undervaluing it. So when we overvalue it, we deify it. When we undervalue it, we demonize it. But here's what I need you to see in light of scripture. Our jobs shouldn't be deified or demonized because our jobs, according to scripture, have been delegated. They shouldn't be deified and they shouldn't be demonized because according to scripture, our jobs have been delegated to us by God himself. I'm going to show you a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's a verse that, honestly, if I would have read through it, just reading through scripture, I probably wouldn't have thought much about it. But in his book, Every Great Endeavor, which is a book by Keller on the theology of work. If you want to read more on this subject, I would wholeheartedly recommend that book, Every Great Endeavor. Keller has a whole chapter dedicated to this one verse. And what he argues in that chapter, actually, is that Martin Luther, the reformer, who wrote a lot about the theology of work, has pages and pages and pages dedicated to this one verse of the Bible. So let's see what it says. He says, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, only let each person lead the life, get this, that the Lord 
has assigned to him. This word here in Greek, it has to do with dividing an inheritance. It's a father dividing his inheritance with his children. It's not haphazard. It's not random. It's an assignment given from a father to their child. And then he says, and to which God has called him. This word here is used in Romans 8 to describe the work of salvation. So, so get this. He's talking about whatever season of life you find yourself in, it has been assigned and you have been called to it. And he, in that chapter, he gives examples of singleness versus married, uh, the person who is uh, 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 employed and unemployed. He gives all these different examples in chapter 7 of, of, of what he means by assignment and by calling. So, so get this, get this, because this is something that I don't think we've ever wrestled with. If the same Greek word is used here and in Romans 8, you are just as called to your vocation as you were to your salvation. But there are so many people that would amen the, the, the salvation part. Yeah, God called me. I couldn't save myself. God brought me to him. He called me. But my job, on the other hand, yeah, I just a side gig that I'm doing for this season. We're so quick to see God's calling when it comes to our salvation and to see his calling when it comes to our sanctification. But the Bible says that God is just as sovereign over your vocation as he is over your salvation. So much so that Paul says, wherever you are, when, he, when you come to Jesus, whatever the Lord has assigned you, whatever the Lord has called you, continue to lead that life. He puts you there. And then just in case you think this is just for the church in Corinth, he ends with, this is my rule in all the churches. Don't miss that language. That is crazy to me that that's the language that would be used, that God has assigned to us our vocation. God has called us to our season of life. As a matter of fact, the word vocation in English, the, uh, it comes from the Latin, and it literally in Latin means to be called. So the word that we use, vocation, literally means my calling. Here's why that's important. If our jobs are callings, if our jobs have been assigned to us, one of the things that I've talked about here in the past that I think bear, needs to be repeated in this, in this setting and in this context is I've talked about the difference between calling and capability. There's a, there's a difference between what you're capable of and what you're called to, okay? The world will tell you, do whatever you are capable of. They don't believe in a God, so why would there be any calling? It's whatever you are capable of, go and do that. God says, no, no, don't do what you are capable of. Do what I have called you to. See, when I stand before God, God's not going to say, hey, Will, what were you capable of that you did or didn't do? No, he's, he's going to ask me, what did I call you to and did you do it or not? There's always a gap between what we're capable of and what we're called to. And the question is, why? Why is there always a gap? The reason why there's always a gap is because the same God that called you to your vocation also calls you to be a disciple maker and also calls you to be a, a spouse if you're married, a parent if you have children, to be in biblical community if you're a follower of him. 
So the reason why God doesn't call us to be what we're, what we're capable of is because if in every area of our lives we just did what we were capable of, at some point other things are going to suffer. See, that's what I was talking about when the child sacrificed things. The reason why there are so many people offering their children on that altar is because at their job, instead of doing what they're called to, they're doing what they're capable of. If I can work uh, 70 hours, I'm going to work 70 hours because that's what I am capable of. Problem is, God calls you to more than just your job. If, if I gave my, my, my heart and my soul to this job, and, and you found out I was working 90 hours a week, but then six months from now, my marriage was falling apart, I should get fired. I did what I was capable of, but not what I was called to. As a matter of fact, if you think about the concept of indispensability, the odds of you guys finding someone to replace me in this role, there are numerous people that can replace me here. Only one person can be the husband of, one wife, of my wife and the father of my children. That's why there's always a gap, always, always, always a gap between what God calls you to and what you're capable of. That's why I believe Solomon says what he says in chapter four, where he says, better is one hand with tranquility, with rest, than two hands of toiling and striving. And that literally implies you, you could have another hand on it, but instead you should have one, one of rest. And what I love about the, the language there in the Hebrew is that it's not just a hand that is clenched. It's actually a hand that is laid either at your side or laid on something. It's a resting hand that's open to receive. Because so often when it comes to work, we, we have like these two reactions, right? There's the person who, who will, th th this is the overvalue, undervalue. When we overvalue work, we clench our fists and we're like, it's up to me. It's up to me. I got to do this. But that's when work is fulfilling. And then when it's frustrating, instead of opening our hands up again, we just do this. Well, forget it then. But the, the, the language there in Hebrew is of a hand that's laying somewhere. It's just receiving. It's not reaching. It's receiving. If I, if I look back at my life, most of my stress, anger, bitterness, burnout comes from me trying to do what I'm capable of instead of me doing what I've been called to. When, and, and here's the thing, church. If it's true that, that your job, your vocation is a calling, it's an assignment, then here's what that means. If it's from God, that means that there is no distinction between the secular and the sacred. And that's actually one of the reasons why Martin Luther writes what he wrote back in the day, because in those days, they thought that only the clergy were doing the work of God. And the blacksmith wasn't, the shoemaker wasn't, uh, the stay-at-home mom wasn't. They thought the only person doing the work of God was the clergy. And he says, no, in light of the fact that it is a calling, in light of the fact that it's an assignment, it doesn't matter if you're a librarian or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or retired. Whatever season you find yourself in, it has been assigned to you. No secular, sacred divide. And that's why he says in the passage... If you look at uh, Ecclesiastes, 3, uh, or Ecclesiastes 2 right at the end, here, here's what he says. He says, if you have a biblical theology of work, all of a sudden there is nothing better for a person uh, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyments. Everyone say enjoyments. 
And what I love about that word enjoyment is, is it doesn't mean that everything's perfect. The word enjoyment means in Hebrew, the ability to see the good in something. Not that it's all good, but it's the ability to see the good in something. That when you have a biblical theology, you are able to see the good in your toil. And he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, everyone say pleases. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, everyone say sinner. He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. So, so here is what Solomon is saying. He's saying that when you realize that work is a gift and not a God, you are able to demote it from just from being a God thing in your life to just being a good thing again. And instead of exalting it, which is to deify it, instead of having enmity with it, which is to demonize it, you get to enjoy it because it's been delegated to you. You see the difference? And once you return it, demote it from being a God thing to just being a good thing, all of a sudden your job and your occupation, it describes you, but it no longer defines you. I don't know if you noticed, but you never see Paul in any of his letters be like, Paul, a tent maker. <laughs> never. He refers to himself as a servant of Christ. The only reason why we even find out his job is because he says in, in one of the letters, I had to, I didn't want to be a burden on you. And so I did my side work because I didn't want to be a burden on the church. But, but, but in, our, in our world, the first thing you find out about someone is what they do. Most conversations end right there. Most people never even find out we're Christians because they're too busy finding out about our occupations. Once it gets put back where it belongs, it no longer defines us, it describes us. So then we can lose our job, we can get a new job, we can retire from it, and our hands are open the whole time. Because I'm not defined by it. It describes me, but it doesn't define me. It is a gift that I steward, not a God that I serve. Listen, when the giver is replaced by the gift, you get idolatry. But when we remind ourselves that the gift is from the giver, we get intimacy. I want to share a story with you before we move on to the final point. I, um, a couple weeks ago, had lunch with one of my pastors, one of my, pastors, one of my elders, and we were over at uh, Frank Gersanti's. And uh, is it Frank Gersanti's over at the Embassy Suites? I don't know. There's so many Gersanti's. I don't know. Um, but... We're sitting there, and after we finish our lunch, I look over, and uh, Pastor Ronnie Stevens is seated over at the table to our right. And for those of you who've been here, you know Ronnie has preached here uh, on this stage. And, and Ronnie is one of the godliest, most brightest guys I've ever met. He's, he's absolutely brilliant. It's ridiculous how smart he is. And uh, he's one of my mentors here in Memphis. And so I see him, and he sees me, and he's like, hey, come sit down. So I sit down with them, and he's having lunch with this pastor in the area. And he introduces us, and the guy goes, oh, wait, Will Franco, yeah, I've heard of you, man. And I'm like, oh, no, like, you know, what'd you hear, you know? And he goes, you're the guy that took over High Point Church a few years back. 
And I'm like, yeah. He's like, dude. Right? He's like, it's been a long four years, man. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it has. So he, I don't know how he knew so much about me, but he starts listing all the things I've had to navigate for the past four years. And so it became like a, a surprise pity party. Like I wasn't expecting it, you know? I wasn't expecting it, but I was there for it, okay? Like I was like, reservation, Franco party of one. <laughs> and so he, so he, he's given me, the, he's given me the, the pity party and I got my violin out and I'm like, yeah, dude. You don't even know the half of it, you know? Like I'm just like, I, I, I'm putting uh, gas on that fire, right? And so as all this is happening on this side of the table, uh, Ronnie is trying to figure out how to like pay the, the you know, for the meal and he's, he can't figure out the receipt. And a lot of times brilliant people can't do simple things like that. Like it's just like, he's having like a, he's like, what is this? You know, like how do I pay for this? You know, so he, he's, he's all, he's fidgeting over to, to our right. I don't even think Ronnie's listening, or at least I thought he wasn't. So after he figures out the whole check thing, he sets it aside and uh, he looks over at me and he goes, uh, so it's been hard, huh? And it kind of threw me. He's like, you're saying that the last four years have been hard. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, really, really difficult. And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, how good is God that he saw you worthy of entrusting you with such a task? Amen. You know how when the DJ, like the, like the, the record, like, it's like, <laughs> like the pity party was going, bro. And I was like, Arr! I had to put the violin away, you know what I mean? And, but I had never thought of it that way. I had never thought of it as God seeing me worthy of entrusting me with such a task. I had never seen it that way. If you understand that concept, it doesn't just change the way you approach work. It changes how you approach suffering. It changes how you approach hardship. Everything changes if you see it that way. That he saw me worthy of entrusting me with such a task. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know. I know God does. And he saw you worthy of entrusting you with that task. Biblical theology, when it comes to our work, enables us to see work as a task that is entrusted to us, as a task that has been delegated to us for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. So we've seen the futility of work. We've seen the theology of work. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the utility, the utility of work. Everyone say utility. utility. Here's the thing. If you're anything like me, you probably are thinking, okay, well, we're good, right? Like you, you gave me the futility. You gave me the theology. So I'm going to just go and do likewise now. I'm going to avoid the bad stuff. I'm going to go do the good stuff. We're good. But here's why we're not good. Because changing your view about work at the head level does nothing about your values at the heart level. See, see, changing your view, having a theology of work at the head level doesn't fix the underlying issue and problem that we have with work. You can have the right theology at the head level. You could even have the right praxology at the, at the hand level. But none of it works if you don't have the right doxology at the heart level. You see, we need to remember in light of Genesis 3 that the reason why we struggle with work to begin with 
is because work, our struggle with work is actually a symptom. It is a side effect of a greater problem, of a deeper disease, and that disease is sin. And we know that there's a deeper issue at hand because of the language that Solomon uses. He uses the term sinner. We read past it, but I had you repeat it. The word there, sinner, in Hebrew refers to an individual who has wandered off the right path. It refers to an individual who has fallen short of something. Like this is the standard and we have fallen short of said standard. It refers to an individual who has missed the mark. In other words, living a life that pleases God is the bullseye. And instead of hitting the bullseye, we hit the ceiling. That is what the word sinner there means. It says that to the sinner, the one who is sinning, the one who is a sinner at the head, heart, and hand level, it says God is not pleased with that individual, which means to be found acceptable, to be approved of by God. So you think, okay, great. I got it then. Don't be a sinner and please God. Thanks. I'll take it from here. The problem is, is that if you take it from here and try to do that, you're using work as a fig leaf. You are trying to cover the nakedness and the shame by what you do instead of what's been done. Here's what's crazy to me. Even as I'm talking, there are probably people in this room who are like, you know what, pastor, I agree. I got to change my ways at work. And I promise I will. I'm going to start applying all this theology you gave me once I get that promotion. Man, once I get this new job, everything will be better. Once my boss finally notices me, everything will be good. Once I get rid of that coworker I can't stand, I'm going to start, I'm going to be the most biblical theologian you've ever seen. See, the problem though is, since work is a gift and not a God, what we need is not a new job. What we need is not a new role. What we need is not a new promotion. What we need is a new heart. It's so bad that in verse 25, it says that apart from God, we can't even enjoy stuff. Our heart is so wicked that apart from God, we can't even enjoy our jobs or creation. That is how affected and impacted we've been by sin. So if it's not just a theology issue at the head level, and it is a doxology issue at the heart level, where can we go? Because I don't know if you know this, but like Adam and Eve, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. We have all wandered off the path. And so if they couldn't please God, and we can't please God, then who could? Well, according to scripture, at the beginning of the gospels, the only individual who ever truly pleased God was Jesus Christ. And, and one of the things that stand out to me about Jesus is that he came not just to be a model, a model for our work, but he came to be our Messiah from our work. Here's why he came to be a model. Because you may not know this, but Jesus worked for 30 years in obscurity. Before he was the savior, before he was the mediator, he was a carpenter. And he did his job day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, in obscurity. And I don't know if Jesus was the most talented carpenter that ever lived, but I do know. I do know this. He was the most faithful one. He did his job well. 
He stewarded what was delegated to him. He didn't deify it. He didn't demonize it. He stewarded it because it was entrusted to him and delegated to him by his father. We are so quick to get to 30-year-old Jesus, but he modeled for us what our relationship to work should be like. See, but he's not just our model, though. He's our Messiah. He's our model in his earthly work, but he is our Messiah in his heavenly work. He's our model when it comes to vocation, but he's our Messiah when it comes to redemption. He came to do what no one could do, because it says in Psalms that no one is righteous, not even one. But he came to do what we could not do. He came to live a good and pleasing life. And then at the end of his life, he died a tragic, sacrificial death. Jesus Christ stepped into our toil. He stepped into our labor. He stepped into our striving. And never once did he sin against his father. And he not only stepped into the thorns and the thistles metaphorically, but at the end of his life, he took our thorns and thistles physically with the crown that was put on his head. At the cross, Jesus Christ, he died the way he died because he took what we deserved. It says in Romans 6.23, we saw it last week, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That word wages is work language. It's occupational language, that when you work, you get wages. When you work, you get a paycheck. So when we go to God about what we deserve, I've been striving, I've been toiling, I've been working apart from you under the sun. Give me what I deserve. God says what you deserve. The wage, the paycheck is death. Jesus Christ died the way he did because he took our wages. He took our wages so that by faith in him, he took what we deserved so that by faith in him, we might get what he deserved, his riches and his inheritance. He finished the greatest work, the ultimate labor of love. And what I love about Jesus is that not only did he do the greatest work, but then he provides the greatest rest because he did something that no mediator ever did before him. It says that he went up to heaven and sat. He rested at the right hand of the Father. And because of his Vertical work, his vertical work changes our horizontal work. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. We've read this numerous times throughout the series, but I want, I want to read it from a slightly different angle this time. Uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So that's our problem, right? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so he says, in light of this reality, in light of Jesus' vertical work, his vertical work has a direct impact on our horizontal work. His vertical labor has a direct impact on our horizontal labor. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, which is only true of people who are in Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, so Solomon says that apart from the Lord in the world, your labor is in vain. It's pointless. It's completely meaningless. But in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In light of his labor, his labor has a direct influence on your labor. His work has a direct impact on your work. 
regardless of what season you find your life, you find yourself in. I don't care if you are a mailman. I don't care if you're an engineer. I don't care. Whatever your job is, if you work at a fast food restaurant or if you're retired, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Even if no one else sees it, God sees it. And what I love about grace and what I love about the gospel is that it says that Jesus pleased the Father before his ministry ever started. You would think, go out and and, and fulfill this, this purpose, Jesus, and if you fulfill your purpose, I will be pleased with you. No, no, no. He is pleased with Jesus before he gives him his purpose. We saw it in Genesis. He, he blesses him before he burdens him. Church, if you understand that in the gospel, that's true, all of a sudden now you can go to work, not for significance, but from significance. Not for security, but from security. Not, not for satisfaction, but from satisfaction. Not for salvation, but from salvation. That, that, that if God says, I accept you, I love you, I approve of you, and you've done nothing, then it doesn't matter if you're working 70 hours a week or zero hours a week. Your standing before God is not determined by what you do for him. It's determined by what he's done for you. And that's why Jesus says, he says, he tells the disciples, do not rejoice in in the fact that demons are, uh, 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 you know, submitting to you, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven, he says. In John chapter 6, they go up to Jesus and they want to know what is the work of God? How can we be doing the work of God? Which is a great question, by the way. If you ever meet Jesus, you can ask him that question. What is the work? What should I be about? And Jesus says, the work of God, get this, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. The work of God is not to behave. The work of God is not to produce. The work of God is not to strive. The work of God is to believe. To believe in the one whom he has sent, church. I have one more verse I want to share with you and then we'll end. In Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Here's what you don't know. You you know this. Galatians is my favorite book in the New. Ecclesiastes is my favorite book in the Old Testament. But my favorite verse of all time is Colossians 3.23. I remember being a young believer memorizing this verse just because of how I'm wired, just because of how I, the Lord's created me. This was my go-to verse. Whatever you do, work heartily with all your heart as for the Lord and not for men. Now, for the longest time, and I'm talking about years here, that's the only part of the passage I knew. I got to do it. I got it. I'm going to do it for the Lord, not for men. For the Lord. The problem is, verse 23 doesn't end with a period. It ends with a comma. Knowing, this isn't an emotional thing, this is a a head thing, this is objective, not subjective. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive, not achieve, you will receive, not a wage, an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Church, I can lose my voice tomorrow and never preach again. My inheritance will not change. My reward will not slip away because I don't achieve it, I receive it, and it's not a wage, it's an inheritance. 
If you understand verse 24, it will change how you do verse 23. So what that means is that the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So Dallas Willard says, it's not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning. The gospel is not opposed to working. It's opposed to striving. Because his done changes my do. His vertical work changes my horizontal work. His vertical labor changes my horizontal labor. And his commission changes my vocation. To the degree that we exalt the creator and his work for us, to that same degree we will enjoy his creation and our work for him. Amen? We are uh, glad that you're with us. And as we, we're going to go over some questions here mm-hmm. in a second. Uh, just a reminder, um, my name is Stephen, yeah. if you've not seen me before. and <laughs> um, uh, My name is Justin. Yeah, um, and, and so we're, we're just happy to, to have you with us. Uh, Katie is moderating with us today, and so shout out to Katie uh, if, if you have any questions or you need any help with anything. There's also a QR code over Justin's mm-hmm. head on, over there on the right somewhere. Uh, if you're interested in Mission Church, if you want to... If you need response for something, if you want prayer, you can click that uh, QR code and it will, it will take you to our pages where you can mm-hmm. do all, all manner of things and find out all you can about Mission Church. So it's yeah. just great to have you, have you with us. And we're going to jump in straight into the questions and uh, Justin's going to start reading Ecclesiastes right. for us. Yeah, uh, we're going to reread. Uh, we have a few verses that we went over today, uh, which is great. But we're just going to read Ecclesiastes 2, uh, verse 18 to 23. Uh, it says, I hated all my toil and which I toil under the sun, saying that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will rise, who will be, who, uh, uh, whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has told with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Mm. This also is vanity. Mm. Um, um, I had to underline heart in there yeah, twice, and yeah. it's just, it was cool. We talked about just from the, the inwardness of us to yeah, where yeah. it's not necessarily our hands that we feel like we focus on work, which is that, but truly it, it shows and displays yeah. like what's in our heart. But you can hear it. You can hear him talk about despair. Yeah. talks about, you know, all these emotional things. So, yeah, yeah definitely good. Uh, so, Stephen, question to you. Uh, so, what about today? Uh, like, yeah convicted you, confronted you, um, comforted you yeah. uh, uh, from the message. Yeah, I think one of the things he, he's, he talked about in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, it says mm-hmm. that the Lord has assigned to us um, and has called us to do certain things. And and that's just, I was like, man, that's, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Like to know that my work, whatever that work is, is something that God has assigned me to. 
right? Mm. That it's, I'm called to do that thing. Mm. Um, and so that was very, it was very encouraging. Um, but it was, it was a little convicting too, to, to make me make sure that I'm putting work in the right perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not just a paycheck. It's not just something that I do. It's part of what God's plan is yeah. in my life yeah. and that it's assigned to me. And so that, that was really great. Yeah. Uh, and then he made this statement, your vocation is just as directed by God as your salvation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. whoa, like that's, that's good. Yeah, it's definitely interesting what I thought of. I mean, Will talked about uh, just that balancing act as well of having uh, in moderation work, not uh, deifying it, but not demonizing as well. Yeah. And the fact that Christ was the perfect example of, of doing that. That right. uh, God entrusted him with what he entrusted him with, yeah. uh, and he was just a good steward right. with that. So we can model that. In all those ways as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard because we, we tend to do one or the other. Yeah. To where we're like, uh, work, pooey. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, or is uh, we do It's the only thing it, in your life. And we yeah. idolize it and worship yeah. it and like we prioritize yeah. it to where we can end up sacrificing family members, loved ones, children as well. Yeah. On the altar of work. Yeah, yeah. I um, love so that. I love that when he said that, that uh, work can become a thing we worship. It can become the object of our worship mm -hmm. instead of that it's a gift. Yes. You know, it's a gift from God. Right. So, yeah, that's great. Um, so in Genesis 1 and 2, we mm -hmm. discover that work is not uh, only God's idea, but it was given to humanity mm -hmm. before sin entered, entered the world. How does knowing that the biblical reality affect your overall and approach to work? Yeah, and it was so great just um, we're highlighting and um it was chapter one um, that God blessed um, Adam and Eve. Like he yeah. gave them a blessing and then uh, called them for that yeah. creation mandate. Yeah. And that was just, a, you know, a couple words where God blessed them that I overlook all the time. But to know that he blessed them first before the fall, before sin, yeah. he gave them a blessing and then called them to do something. Yeah. And also we look at it to where now that we have Christ as our ultimate rest, that he's done all the work. We have identity in the gospel to where our calling is what we can be focused on. That can be our work because I know I tend to uh, lean towards uh, whatever I'm capable of, I got to do and go 110% right. on whatever. Right. Um, and I'm adding so many things on my plate that the Lord didn't call me to do. It's yeah. just what I would prefer to do, yeah, what I would yeah. like to do. Yeah. Uh, then I'm looking at myself like, why am I so exhausted? Why, <laughs> why am I tired? Because my plate is full, not because of me being obedient and stewarding what God's called me to do yeah. by making disciples, pouring into family members, yeah. um, reading the word and so on. Sure. But I'm adding Adrian Z on sure. my plate as well. Yeah. So Yeah, I love, I love that. I actually wrote it down where like there's a graph and I said, that we have, you know, we're capable of doing these things, and we, and we do those because, and we're striving. We use mm -hmm. both hands. We're we're striving. We're trying to to earn. And he said, but the calling is much different. It is you have tranquility, and you're mm. you're using one hand because it's the hand that God gave you. It's the hand that God directed you mm -hmm. with, you know. And so there's there's peace in that, and yeah. there's rest in that, yeah. and knowing that I can still do. God's mm -hmm. work and still do my calling, whatever my work is, mm -hmm. um, and that is that's different than just. 
being capable yes. and having capacity. We right. have capa- capacity to do a lot of yes. things. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we're called to do right. that. You know? um, so that's, that's, that's awesome. pretty great. And again, ultimately the gospel is to finish work of the Trinity, uh, what we believe. So yeah. knowing that it's a finished work, and we talked about work, and knowing in light of that, that we can do as much as we can or what we call to. Yeah. Um, but even so, either way, uh, fail, succeed, anything in between, like he's done yeah. the true finished work. Sure. So that's awesome. Um, all right, for you, Stephen. So in Genesis 3, we are told uh, that one of the things that uh, was directly impacted by sin or, or mm-hmm. t- yeah, impacted by sin was our work. Yeah. According to scripture, in what specific ways uh, has sin impacted our work? Yeah. Well, it goes back to we, we, we already talked about that, that or part of this, that um, part of it is is that it becomes an object to worship mm-hmm. and versus uh, a gift to, to be called to, mm-hmm. right? So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is is because of sin entering into the world, we know that it's going to be harder now mm-hmm. to work, right? And that's what Genesis tells us is that in Genesis 3, because of the fall... They had work before that. Mm-hmm. He told them, you have to toil and take yep. care of the, you know, you're going to have to take care of the the um, the garden. Like, you need to take care of the garden. That's your mm-hmm. that's your mandate. Yeah. Um, and be fruitful, multiply, right? But so work came before the fall. But after the fall, now it's got thorns and thistles in mm-hmm. there. And he's got to toil and he's got to, you know, hoe up the stuff. And mm-hmm. he's got to rake it and he's got to, you know, tear it down and and all those things you know uh doing that gardening and so because of sin the one of the consequences is is work is much difficult yeah much more difficult now and so um just we have to be reminded that there is a consequence to sin Mm -hmm. Uh, but what that does is that points us back to god and it makes us trust in him even more to understand that i can't do this on my own you know i can't do this just in my strength it has to be done in the strength that yeah. God gives me, yeah. uh, that comes from God. And so I think it's really important that we understand both sides, mm-hmm. that, yes, it's a gift, work is a gift, and, yes, we have a calling, uh, but we also have to understand that it's also going to be hard. Yeah, <laughs> You know, that we're, we're going to yeah. have to suffer some. Yeah, even know? now more so after the fall and yeah. after seeing we, yeah. like you said, can idolize work and yeah. let that be our God yeah. and be content and live and die um, yeah. with that. Um, we see people nowadays um, work, 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 work. Um, yeah. And it's heartbreaking, but thank the Lord that he's given us him, himself yes. so we can have an identity in all that we do. Right. So uh, one of our last questions today is, mm-hmm. is because of our idolatrous hearts, right? Mm-hmm. We all have idolatry in our lives, whether you know it or not. Every, appro- every person approaches their work trying to satisfy one of the root idols, mm-hmm. uh, satisfaction, significance, or security. Uh, which one of those motivates you? Which one do mm-hmm. you see play out every day in your life? Yeah, I'm um, definitely a security person. On Enneagram, I'm a six. Um, and <laughs> security is just... My wife like, is a six, so I get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. I'm not too much of a significance person because don't care too much about what other people say or think. Yeah. It's like, I oh, can't control that. Um, satisfaction, it'll probably be close second. I'm like, oh, yeah, we do this and do that. But security, as long as like I'm good, as long as my family is good, <laughs> yeah. as long as my yeah. friends and right. everyone else is good and right. safe and secure. Um, and the big thing is that as long as my plan is being done, as uh, long as Justin's plan is uh, coming to fruition, <laughs> I'm good. So definitely yeah. security. 
um, is huge for me. And I see that with, oh, how do I attain security yeah. in my life? Yeah. Uh, and that is through my hands working, yeah. um, doing whatever I need to do. Um, so I can definitely see what's well, cool how we'll hit these root idols because all of these can um, go into idolizing work. Sure. Um, so I see that. But again, uh, yeah. my plan and all that is yeah. that needs to come come true however way that they can be. But it's super cool to know because I know Will says this all the time is that no matter how much um, I would like it to be true, like the gospel isn't opposed to effort and putting forth effort but it's just striving after the win. Yeah. It's it's putting that all that toil into things that don't matter compared yeah, to. Yeah, it's opposed what to earn. It's it's not opposed to effort. It's opposed yeah. to earning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, you know, mine is mine is is uh, is significance. Um, I, I'm a I'm a two on the enneagram mm-hmm. with a three wing, which this may may not be a lot <laughs> to you guys, but basically that means that uh, that I've got to perform. For people's approval, like I, I want that, I need that. Uh, I, I was joking with Katie earlier, and I said it's it's also this issue of I have this uh, false humbleness mm. where I, I pretend to be, or I you know my heart's like oh I'm humble, I'm humble, I'm humble, but I'm doing this, <laughs> you know, because my heart's saying no, I want I want to be approved mm-hmm. of, uh-huh. you know. Um, but I, on the outs on the outside, I'm I'm saying no, no, it's fine. I don't I don't want <laughs> no approval. stop. Yeah, but, no yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah. No, really, really, really. <laughs> and so um, that that's really how yeah. it, it is for me. And so I have to I have to guard against that and remember that my significance is not in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is in my identity in Christ, mm-hmm. and that that's where it should be alone. Yeah. Um, oh. You know, I I loved the little story that he he said uh, about Ronnie Stevens, mm-hmm. who we love here. That uh, God is, God is good to entrust us mm-hmm. with what He's entrusted us with, yeah. and that um, that's a great thing to remember. As you're hitting a hard time this week in work, because you will, we all will. Uh, as you hit that hard mm-hmm. time this week in work, remember that work is something that God has assigned you. He's called you to this, and and that how wonderful it is that God has given us mm-hmm. this gift, entrusted us with this gift that we get to uh, participate in right. in that in that work so yeah and it can feel daunting it was like oh this is a lot but again we just remember in the gospel that if we fail or we miss a mark because we will um, oh yeah that again his his grace is sufficient that's right and it uh compensates for any of our lackings in any way yeah um so to know and be because if we don't have that whenever we're doing something that we feel like we're called to or capable of and we missed a mark, then it's just despair and hopelessness. Yeah. And it's like, uh, um, that's what but, you hear. That's what you hear in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, exactly. You hear that despair and that, yeah. I tried this and I tried and I tried mm-hmm. and I, it never worked. Yeah. You know? But I think that's a big difference between being called to something because we come from the identity first. Yeah. And then we do what we're called compared right. to just doing what we're capable of. Uh, that's tough. That's, yeah. that's going to lead to despair and a lot, a lot of Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, lifestyles yeah, at the end of we'll, the day. Will said today that it changes how we suffer Yeah, when we understand that. Right, right, and that's right. just a great point. Awesome. So. Well, thank you guys for being here. Another great message. Always great uh, being able to be here with my guy Steven and just talking yeah. with you guys do some good questions and going through the word. Uh, definitely awesome time. So if you guys are in the area 
please come visit um, either our Memphis location or our Carterville location yeah. as well. We love to see you, shake your hand, uh, give you a hug if you're a hugger, and just talk to you and say, hey, uh, always good talking um, about the gospel with people and just hanging out. So yeah. definitely good. You know, and our, our point here is to, to have you connected. Mm-hmm. So if you're away from us in a place that you there's no way for you to visit, we want to get you connected to a local church that's right in the in your area. And so reach out to us so we can help you find that church um, or we can help you get connected here. Mm-hmm. So uh, we love you guys. We will see you guys next week and I hope you have a great week. Yeah.